getting to introduce you to people you may or may not have heard about. And I want to introduce you, first of all, to a gentleman. Uh, when he posed for this portrait, I'm not sure he knew how it would come out. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. It's a little bit suspicious, doesn't he? He was a German poet, playwright, novelist, state scientist, statesman, theater director, and critic of the 19th century. A brilliant mind. He once made a statement. Give me the benefit of your convictions if you have any, but keep your doubts to yourself, for I have enough of my own. Most of us can relate to that, I think. We have enough of our own doubts. And we're not alone. The whole reason the book of Galatians is written is because there were a group of Christians in Asia Minor who had embraced the truth of the gospel, but now found them in doubt of its truth. All because they were listening to the wrong people. They were caught up in doubt, about to abandon their faith. Now, I suspect most of us in this room, I know I have, we've dealt with doubts. Doubts about our relationship with God. Doubts about whether or not we truly belong to Him or had faith. If so, there's one other person I'd like to introduce you to. And just right off the bat, I've got to say, you know this guy's got to be really amazing because how many preachers have been given their own comic book up from Harlem based on his autobiography, Tom Skinner? Skinner was a powerful man of God who grew up in Harlem in a really bad situation in life. Joined gangs, was a very, very rough man. And then one day he met Christ. And when he went back to his gang to tell them that he had become a Christian, he was later told by one of the warlords, I was about to get up and stab you to death, but something was holding me in my seat. I couldn't get up. Skinner influenced a lot of people. He upset a lot of people because he spoke some truth that no, not everybody was ready to hear in the 60s and into the 70s in our country. He influenced Dr. Tony Evans, if any of you are familiar with him. He once made a statement that I absolutely love, and I'm trying to etch it into my brain. He said, I spent a long time trying to come to grips with my doubts, and suddenly I realized that I had better come to grips with what I believe. I have since moved from the agony of questions that I cannot answer to the reality of answers that I cannot escape. And it is a great relief. Today we're going to look at some answers that we can't escape. Answers that will reach into our hearts and help us. Uh, as we hear the word of the Lord, I ask you to stand. Galatians 3, 5 through 4, 10 through 14, excuse me. A very powerful passage. And I want you to listen carefully with both ears and your heart. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, 
Accursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul wrote to the Galatians because he wanted them to understand they were fully and finally free. They did not have to go back under yokes of chains impossible for them to break. He wrote to the Galatians and he showed them two alternatives. Two alternatives that people seek to be made right before God. One offered a path that could be trusted. One ultimately would lead to doubt, fear, and failure. Having said that, this is important for us. I want you to understand This text and many others let us know we can have confidence that we are right before God. You can have faith that you truly are in the hands of God above. Now how is that possible in a world that is so full of confusion and so full of craziness? How can I say we can have confidence? Well, to help us get there, I want us to look at the two choices lay before us in our text. Two choices that people make. And my prayer for you is simple today. I want you to hear the answer that can give you assurance. The choice that can guide you in your steps to finding relief and confidence and assurance in Christ. But before that comes, we're going to take a look at the first choice. The one that fails. The first alternative we can choose from is focused on personal performance. The first alternative we can choose is focused on personal performance. You may have heard somebody say in their life, I'm really hoping that the good I do outdoes the bad I do, outweighs the bad, so I have a chance to go to heaven. That's all about personal performance. And we need to understand, Paul is very clear here. Paul wrote that any attempt on building a relationship with God through keeping the law would end horribly. The scales are going to be broken. It's not going to work. You can't do it. He made that very clear. No matter what the false teachers were telling them, the law could not justify. It could only condemn And to help them understand that, Paul quoted Deuteronomy 27-26. Now, chapters uh, 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy are part of uh, Moses' farewell address. And in 27, he goes through a long list of curses. If you do this, you will be cursed. If you will do that, you will be cursed. But 27, verse 26 says, if you don't keep every point of the law you will be cursed. 
he's letting know the breaking of only one command. Even only once brought a person under the curse. And since everybody fails at some point or other, it was clear everybody are under the curse. Now, this was a view that was popular, not just with Paul's mind, uh, but with a lot of rabbinic thinking in his day. The school of Shammai uh, reckoned that if you, even if you had a 99% record of keeping the law, that 1% would keep you out. Now, the school of Hillel, the far more liberal rabbinic school, said you can make it in by just keeping 51%. 51% is a passing grade, according to Hillel. Timothy George has pointed out further that Paul probably doesn't just have in mind the law. If you read Romans uh, chapters 1 through 3, I encourage you to do so this week, you will see that Paul argued that both Jews and Gentiles are under the law, albeit in very different ways. So when Paul talked about the curse of the law, he's not just thinking merely of Jews trying to keep the Levitical code. He's saying anybody who tries to live a life that will get them into whatever they think heaven will be, won't make it. Because you can never do it. The child of Abraham... It comes to him through faith. And that doesn't just belong to Gentiles, it belongs to everyone. The idea that anyone who's trying to earn their way to God can't make it belongs to everyone. No one who tried to gain salvation through any attempt to keep outward rituals and laws could be so justified. So what am I trying to say? Well, let me be as clear as Paul. Personal performance is not a viable option for being made righteous. We simply cannot live up to the law. We will ultimately fail at some point. And when that failure comes, that negates any hope we have of getting ourselves into heaven. In short, Paul pointed out, it's not good enough that the good outweighs the bad. There can't be any bad. It all has to be good. No failure at keeping the law at all. As additional evidence of this, Paul said, and the, your scriptures itself say that the law won't justify. And he quoted then Habakkuk 2.4. He's already quoted. We'll quote it again in his writings. The righteous will live by faith. Essentially, Paul is emphasizing this truth. The one who follows Abraham's example of trusting in God is the one who is the seed of Abraham, is, the one, is his descendant, will have the blessing of God upon him. And his primary goal here was to make it absolutely clear to these Galatians and to us, we are justified only through faith, not by merit not by good works of moral excellence. So we, together, how does this impact us? How do we figure this out? How do we live thinking about this alternative? We must embrace the reality that we simply cannot 
bridge the gap between God and ourselves. The false teachers refused to acknowledge this. They somehow thought by keeping the law, having faith, keeping the law, keeping the law would do it. And there are a lot of pride-driven hearts today. I don't need a Savior. I can do it myself. I'm not weak like you. I'm not crippled like you. I can handle my life. And I can get along. But we have to acknowledge, it, calling ourselves Christians, we must accept and acknowledge the futility of trying to earn our way. If there is any inkling of thought in your your brain, I've got to do my best to be sure. Get rid of it. Paul says you will never do your best. That's the first alternative. And it's failure. If you try to earn your way, you are going to fail. So the second alternative The second alternative we can choose from is focused on trusting in the accomplishment of Christ. Looking at what He has done. And folks, I know as Baptists in the 21st century, we don't hoop and holler like we did back on the frontier. This is a hoop and hollering verse. This is a truth that we should be excited about. We should be amening about. And if, you're not, if you don't do it outside, at least do it on the inside. Because the Apostle Paul wrote that Christ became a curse for us. Because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse. By the way, this is the very first time in the book of Galatians that Paul uses the word redeemed. The theme of redemption runs throughout the books in, in chapters 1 and 2. But here he spells it out. And the idea of redemption is rescue. The word actually came from a word that meant marketplace, where slaves would be sold. And then in the Roman Empire, people would come to the Agora to buy their slaves. But Paul is saying Christ has purchased us and set us free from the slavery of sin and the slavery to the law. It meant to buy off, to pay a price. So, by becoming a curse for us, a curse on our behalf, there is an element of the cross that a lot of modern people don't like to think about, and it is the idea of substitutionary redemption. That Christ somehow took upon Himself the penalty of all guilty lawbreakers. And we are told that the curse then of the law is transferred from sinners to Christ Himself, the sinless one. And He delivered people from it. How? The fact that He died, this perfect man died a sacrificial death. And Paul points out that the verse he quotes from Deuteronomy 21-23, it is written, Cursed is everyone that is hanged on a, uh, is hung on a tree. Paul is given a, a free interpretation. This is very much a rabbinical kind of thing to do. 
uh, when Moses wrote about being hung on a tree, he's not talking about crucifixion. Folks, that's thousands of years before the crucifixion was invented. What it referred to. There were four means, the Talmud tells us, recognize modes of capital punishment. And I'm not going to go into them. They're rather gruesome. And we do have some young ears here. But the, the, the last part about after they were died, the body would be exposed and shown to everybody in the public forum. And it was a warning. When you do a crime worthy of capital punishment, you will be hung in shame. I watched one of the most gut-wrenching documentaries I've ever seen in my life last night. It was only 15 minutes long, and the title is Postcards of a Lynching. There were 4,000 lynchings in America from the late 1800s through 1968. And many of them were done publicly, and at the height of it, they were all done publicly. And there were actually photographers taking pictures and selling postcards so you could send to your family. One wrote that this was a token of a very good day on the back of his car. The idea, powerfully driven, every person lynched, was setting an example that if you are African, you better behave. (laughs) And in a stroke of genius, NAACP grabbed hold of those postcards and started flooding the country and letting people see the horror that was there. It's the same idea in in Deuteronomy. Expose the criminal as a warning. But Paul is taking it to look at the cross. And indeed, the people who watched Jesus hung on that tree would have understood Deuteronomy. This man deserved to die. He was a criminal. He was a false messiah. He tried to lead us away from the the law of Moses. He deserves death. But he didn't, did he? He was perfect. But he decided to die as a transgressor. For you. For me. That's how great the love was. He died on our behalf to redeem us, to purchase us from our slavery. Now, back in Deuteronomy, you had to take the body down before nightfall because you might curse the whole land. If you've ever wondered why they were so worried about Jesus and the thieves hanging on the cross into Saturday, It was a carryover from the idea. If they hang there, then Passover Sunday will be a curse this year. When Paul said that, I want you to understand the significance. By quoting the Old Testament, by us looking at 
the suffering servant this morning, we see that the Word of God declared this was the plan of God all along. It was not an accident of history. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't that Jesus got the wrong people mad and had to suffer for it. This was the plan of God. I am going to give my Son to make it possible for you to call me Father. And the idea of Christ hanging on a tree was an integral part of the preaching of the Gospel throughout the book of Acts into 1 Peter as well. A witness that the death on the cross was a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. He was willing to die on our behalf. And this is at the heart of what became known as the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. That Jesus died in our place. And it has been pointed out uh, that instead of hushing up his death, because it was scandalous, and Paul says the preaching of the cross is a scandal to the Jew, they're telling everybody about it. They're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it was not his curse that put him on the tree. It was our curse that he took upon himself. Following the success of the Communist Revolution in China in 1948, um, a journalist um, points out that there were two young men who were given the job of destroying Christian chapels. And one evening at dusk, after they had devastated a small chapel, they decided to sleep in it overnight. And when they lay down on the floor, they looked up and there was the crucifix. It was so high up that they hadn't been able to reach it. And one of the men reportedly said to his companion, do you see the, that picture of God nailed to that stick of wood? Yes, what of it? You know, I never saw a God who suffered before. And this was new. This was different than anything that had ever happened on earth before. The perfect Son of God came to die for us. Why? So that we could be brought into the family. That the blessings of Abraham could be ours. That the Spirit of God could come and dwell within us. He gave Himself willingly, fully, and finally. And this was the only means by which humanity can be saved. And a large percentage of humanity doesn't like that. Human ego may find it hard to admit that we need someone else to redeem us. Most of the world religions are about earning your way to whatever you think heaven might be. This is saying you can't. Because you can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself righteous. What we can do is swallow that human ego and look to the one who died in our place. The God who suffered. Not because of His sin, but because of ours. The one who suffered that we could know Him. And so today, folks, let's pay attention to this. How do we apply this into our lives that are sometimes filled with questions and doubts because we 
don't think we're doing well enough, we must joyfully embrace the truth that Christ has paid the price for our justification to be possible. The price has already been paid. And you can't pay it. And you can't make the the price any more significant. It has been paid. I wish I could remember who I first heard this in an interview some many years ago in my teens. I was listening to a guy being interviewed on Christian radio. And he said that uh, when people point out, you're weak, you need a crutch. That's all Christianity is. You're just weak. And his response to them is the same all the time. And I love it. A crutch is pretty good if you're crippled. And folks, we're crippled. We cannot do it on our own. But praise God, He came with a spiritual healing that could heal our brokenness. He came with a price that could take the the guilt of sin off of us. That could give us strength and power to fight the power of sin in our lives. And would eventually and finally deliver us even from the very presence of sin when we go into His kingdom for eternity. So those are the two choices. I've been told I see things too black and white, too concrete. Folks, there are two choices. You're either going to try and work your way, you're going to try really hard to earn or you're going to realize I'll never make it. But having said that, only two choices, I want to give you a warning now. And for most of us in this room, this is the warning we clearly need to hear. I've told you, you can't earn your way. You must come by the cross. Here's the warning. We cannot choose an alternative of blending the two approaches. And that's where a lot of people like you and I are guilty. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge that Paul pointed out that the false teachers were attempting to blend a blending of two incompatible alternatives. These two did not go together. He said, he dismissed the idea of keeping the law to achieve justification. Remember, that's what the Judaizers are telling the Galatians. It's good that you have faith in Christ, but you have to also become a Jew first in order to really be saved. You need to be circumcised before your salvation can be made complete. And Paul said that essentially what he's saying here, law and faith as grounds for justification before God are mutually exclusive. They have no business coming together at all. Now no doubt there were people in Paul's day, as there are in ours, who are quite fine with talking about a justification by faith. Just don't take away the idea that we need to work. And we need to work hard. Timothy George says, God helps those who help themselves is a maxim of theology as well as economics. Problem is, it's not in the Bible. Paul would not tolerate the idea that you have to believe in Jesus 
and keep the law to become the person you were meant to be. He said, the law is not based on faith. The one who does these things, that is the work of the law, in verses 2, 16, and now in chapter 3, 10, the ones who keep the law will live by the law. Now, it might be argued that he has set up at least a hypothetical, but it's a hypothetical that is contrary to fact condition. If someone really could live up to the law and perform every work of the law, then, of the corpus of the Pentateuch, then, uh, by the way, Alan, you got ten commandments. The rabbis say, there are 242 positive commands in the Levitical Code of Law and 365 prohibitions. Try to even remember those. And you see the difficulty of keeping it. If you could do it, then theoretically someone could stand before God at the bar of judgment and say, I deserve to be here. But you will never find such a wonderfully marvelous law-abiding person. Because we break the law. We can't live up to it. Now there are two things that should be observed. Paul is not saying faith and observance of, observance of the law are wholly incompatible. If he were, then he was, he was dismissing all of his Jewish brothers in Christ. Because the, the apostles in Jerusalem had faith in Christ and knew that was what was going to get them to heaven. But they quit, kept going to the temple to pray, didn't they? And for a while until God confronted them about, don't call unclean what I have called cleansed, Peter was eating kosher meals. What Paul is saying, you cannot depend on the law to get you saved or justified. He's not saying for all those Jewish folks who today, brothers and sisters in Christ who are of uh, uh, lineage to Abraham who will absorb Passover completely with a new understanding of what it meant and celebrate the festivals of Israel. They're not doing something wrong by celebrating that. What Paul was saying, faith and observance of the law are incompatible as grounds of justification. Second, he was saying, the law just doesn't take into account faith at all. Have you noticed nowhere in the Word of God are we told to have faith in the law? What are we told to do? If you're looking at passages of Scripture on law, obey it. You're not called upon to have faith. Now, I will contend that folks in, in the, the Old Testament era who trusted God and believed that He was their source of salvation kept the law not because they thought it would save them. They obeyed the law because it was their birthright, would you say? But their faith in, for salvation was in God. They did not have faith. The writer of Hebrews said, uh, that the, the, the blood of bullocks never justified anybody. 
And the reason he could say that is they kept having to do it over and over and over and over again. So, with an understanding, law and faith are mutually exclusive. Paul was saying you can't combine the two. The Galatians were being told by the false teachers that's exactly what you should do. Be circumcised, follow the law, trust in Jesus, and you'll be saved. Now I said, we, this is where we're guilty. How does this affect us? Somewhere in our journey of faith, we need to know that we can never be about faith plus works. We have readily embraced the, the doctrine that tells us you are saved by grace through faith, not over, and that's uh, the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. We are ready to believe that. But somehow we sometimes act as if our sanctification, our becoming godly, will come by observing laws. And boy, do we come up with some interesting laws. I had an extended family member who said that playing cards was sinful. And my eight-year-old mind was blown a bit after having heard him said that the first time there was a family gathering, uh, he sat down to play a game of dominoes. And I was very confused because the game he was playing was a game that could be played either with dominoes or cards. And I asked my mom, what's going on? And she just shook her head and said, don't worry about it, and walked away. I remember being confused by a church member who once shamed me by saying Christians should not go to movies right after I recommended a movie to her. Never did that again. Interestingly enough, she had a TV where she and her husband watched, guess what? Movies. So if nobody sees you doing it, it must not be sinful. I've known people who proudly, proudly refuse to use profanity in their language. And if you use it in front of them, you will be brought to task. But some of those same people did not hesitate in front of my young and malleable ears. They did not hesitate to use racial slurs meant to demean anybody who looked different than they were. That was okay. And I think that's a prime example of when, when the Word says, do not take the Lord of your God in vain, the name of your God in vain. I think profanity is the least reprehensible use, uh, 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 image of breaking that law. The far worse is when we say, I'm a Christian. And live like we're of the devil. The idea of living a right life is in the book of Galatians. We will discover just because we have faith in Christ doesn't mean we are free to do whatever we want. It will become very clear in chapter 5 that the justified by God are expected to live a righteous life, but not by keeping law. Not by making a long list of do and don'ts. And you know what I really love about the long list of do or don'ts? They usually include the things we don't want to do anyway. 
Paul says in Galatians 5, the, the reality of living the godly life comes by surrender to Christ and allowing the Spirit to bring His fruit into your life and letting Him change you, not by you working really hard. Paul agreed that righteousness needed to be fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled by being in Christ and living by His Spirit. His opponents believed, Gentiles, you have to achieve it on your own. So keep these laws. They'll keep you straight. Have faith in Jesus, but be a Jew. We are saved by grace and we will become like Christ by grace. And so, application simple. We must lose forever any hybrid mutation of law and grace. We've got to get out of our mind the idea Jesus saved me. Now the rest is up to me. Folks, in my mind, that's heresy. Christ has saved me. The Spirit of God is the one who is going to continue the process of salvation, making me more into the person I'm supposed to be. I, in turn, am supposed to learn to yield myself. And quit fighting him. So how do we find confidence that we're right? Again, because I like history, let's go back into history. It's been reported that Queen Victoria in England once attended a service in St. Paul's Cathedral and listened to a sermon that interested her greatly. Afterwards, she asked her own chaplain, can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal security? And his answer was that he knew no way that one could be absolutely sure. Well, the incident was published in the court news and came to the note of a minister. I'm pretty sure no one other than his people had ever heard of him before. A minister named John Townsend. After reading of Queen Victoria's question and the answer received, he prayed and then sent the Queen of England the following note. To Her Gracious Majesty, our beloved Queen Victoria, from one of her most humble subjects, with trembling hands but heartfelt love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask Your Most Gracious Majesty to read the following passages of Scripture, John 3.16, Romans 10.9 and 10. I sign myself Your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Imagine the nerve of the man telling the Queen of England, read your Bible. Now, Townsend was a man of fair prayer and faith, but he was not alone in praying. When he decided to send this letter, he took others into his confidence and they too began to pray for the Queen. About two weeks later, he received the following letter. To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to I believe in the finished work of Christ for me and trust by God's grace to meet you in that home of which he said I go to prepare a place for you. Signed, Victoria. After Queen Victoria's discovery, she began carrying a small booklet with her to give away. Its title was Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. That's what she found. 
in Christ. Folks, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with question, there's only one solution. Remember the one who paid the price to save you. Is your faith in him? Have you trusted him? Have you gladly accepted, received the gra- this gracious gift of salvation that he paid the highest price that could be paid? And if you say yes, I trust him, then start laying back in his arms. When doubt comes, and it will, Take those doubts and fears and lay them at the foot of the cross. And know this. By becoming the curse for us, Jesus Christ has made us fully and finally.